except if you don't have much fiber in your diet, the, the fiber is what holds on to the estrogen and carries it away. If you don't have that fiber in your diet because your lunch was Velveeta on chicken breast, you know, it's something, it's animal derived stuff. Um, the, the, without the fiber, the estrogens are reabsorbed from the intestines back into the bloodstream. And then after a while, they end up back at the liver and the liver says, you know, what are you doing here? I thought I got rid of you. And, and it cycles around several times a day in what we call enterohepatic cir circulation, as you know. Mm -hmm. um, so, so fiber cuts, stops that. And it says, okay, estrogen, stop here. Let's go, let's get out of the body. So the fiber part is clear. And if a person gets up to, oh, 30, 35 grams of fiber a day, it's quite a substantial increase from what your average person is eating and it, and it, 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 will, it will reduce their estrogen's level. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Dr. Lori Marvis, and I was so excited to welcome back one of my favorite people is Dr. Neil Bernard. How are you, sir? <laughs> Doing great, Lori. Wonderful to be with you again. Fantastic. Well, you have a new book called Your Body in Balance in, regarding hormones, which is utterly fascinating. I think it's definitely a timely book. And, you know, we discussed beforehand some of the things um, that led you to actually write the book. Could you share what those were and why? Yeah, I, I have to say, when we think about what food can do for us, we think, well, uh, I'll change my diet and I'll lose weight, or I'll get my cholesterol down, or my diabetes will get better. And we don't think of things like fertility, or cramps, or thyroid disease, or menopause symptoms, or, or mood as as having anything to do with what you had for lunch, but that's that's what it is. And I got to tell you, Lori, I, I was sitting right here at this desk about 20 years ago, and my phone rang, and it was a young woman who said, "Dr. Brian and I can't get out of bed." She she had just uh, many women who have menstrual cramps, but for some, they're just off the scale. And that was her situation. And she had a business meeting she had to go to, but she just was doubled up with pain. And so I said, well, let me give you some painkillers for a couple of days. But I started thinking about what is it that causes the cramps? And to make a long story short, we have known for a long time that foods will affect estrogen activity. And we, we, knew, we know that because of cancer patients. Women with breast cancer have for a long time modified their diets to reduce estrogen so that it doesn't stimulate the growth of cancer cells. And there's quite a good literature on that going back to the early 90s. So I thought, all right, well, what are cramps? Cramps are estrogen stimulates the, the inner lining of the uterus to thicken up. And at the end of the month, that thick endometrial lining disintegrates in menstrual flow and it releases prostaglandins that cause cramps. So I thought, okay, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna change the diet so there's not so much estrogen all month long and maybe there will be less prostaglandins and less pain. I gotta tell you, Lori, I don't think any doctor ever suggested to any patient ever that they should go vegan for cramps, but, but that's basically what it is. So I said two, two rules, no animal products, and keep oils to a bare, bare minimum. Uh, because the, the science on this is high fiber, really, really low fat. Um, and so anyway, she, she did it. Mm. And she called me back a month later. 
and said, this is astounding. You know, my, my, my period just started no, no pain whatsoever. And this was true month after month, unless she would kind of liberalize the diet, bring the fried stuff and whatever. And then the pain came back. So I thought that's amazing. And so we then, um, by we, I mean myself and the Georgetown University Department of OBGYN did a crossover trial where we brought in women who had pain and randomly assigned them to either a low-fat vegan diet or to a supplement, which was in effect a placebo. And what we found was amazing. As their periods arrived, on, when, if they were, had been on the diet, they had less, uh, I'm gonna call it PMS symptoms, uh, bloating, water retention, mood changes. And then when, the, when, when their periods were really hitting, the pain itself was shorter in duration and muted in intensity. Mm-hmm. And so that, that I thought, all right, we could turn the dials on hormones. Well, w- w- one last thing, forgive me for this long monologue, Laurie. I, 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 got, I love it, no, please. <laughs> I, gotta, I gotta tell you one last thing. Um, in the course of this study, um, we asked all the participants not to use any hormonal medications because that would be a, a confounder. And, and so that included contraception. So if they were sexually active, we asked them to use any non-hormonal method, condom, whatever it was. One of the women said, don't worry about me. Years ago, she and her husband had been evaluated for, for infertility. And she said, it's not him, it's me. I don't, I don't ovulate. Uh, and so we haven't used any contraception, hormonal or otherwise, for many, many years. So forget about it. The second month that she was on the vegan diet, she came in and she said, I got bad news. I got good news. I said, well, what is it? And she said, I got to drop out of your study because I am pregnant. And, um, and, and, and when, when you're on the diet change and it gets your hormones off that wacky roller coaster into more the the, 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 the range that nature wanted them to be in, if I can put it that way, um, her fertility came back. And a, a few years later, several years later, uh, she came to a talk that I was giving in a different town and she had three kids oh. um, at that point. So, so anyway, I thought, wow, this is, um, there, th- th- that's just the tip of the iceberg. But to, uh-huh. to, make, to make it a long story short, there is a huge science of how foods can turn the dials on sex hormones, on metabolic hormones like insulin, for example, thyroid hormone, and most people have no idea of any of this. So the whole reason behind your body in balance is to say, well, first of all, get your body in balance if you would like to. <laughs> let's, let's see what we can do to make that happen. And that foods are, are, are the issue here. That is fantastic. So did they name their child after you? <laughs> I didn't ask that. I, I, I hope they came up with a better name than that. But, uh, but, but I'm sure they were happy about it. And, and since that time, I have to say, I've only become more impressed by um, the difficulties that people have uh, when it comes to infertility. There are couples spending phenomenal amounts of money and are focused on a, an issue that becomes increasingly sterile for them. Mm. Um, by, by, by that, I mean, it's not love and passion and spontaneity anymore. It's all clinical and medical and expensive and, and things that things it shouldn't be. Right. So my, my hope is that at least for some people, um, foods can be an answer. That's fantastic. I mean, I, I can't, I didn't have any fertility issues. I have three kids and I can't imagine not having them. That would be, I mean, what a blessing you were And that. And it all started with a phone call with someone with painful cramps. 
Yes, I love that. <laughs> um, so as far as the, what do you think, you said a very low fat diet as well. Is there, what is the evidence with the oils being the high fat diet? Is there, is there any specific evidence against that? Yes, um, there have been a number of studies. And as I say, it really started back in the 90s, um, first of all, with women who did not have cancer, um, but they were women volunteers. Uh, Tufts University did particularly good studies where they would bring in women and um, they put them through a variety of different diet changes. But the diets were designed really to do variations of two things. One was to increase fiber and the other was to decrease fat. And fiber, we figured out why, why an increase in fiber is important because the liver removes estrogen from the bloodstream to a degree. It takes that estrogen and get, gets rid of it. It sends it down the bile duct into the intestinal tract. And the intestinal tract then, it, it, you're just flushing excess estrogens down the toilet. Except if you don't have much fiber in your diet, the, the fiber is what holds on to the estrogen and carries it away. If you don't have that fiber in your diet because your lunch was Velveeta on chicken breast, you know, it's something, it's animal derived stuff. Um, they're, they're, without the fiber, the estrogens are reabsorbed from the intestines back into the bloodstream. And then after a while, they end up back at the liver and the liver says, you know, what are you doing here? I thought I got rid of you. And, and it cycles around several times a day in what we call enterohepatic cir circulation, as you know. Mm -hmm. um, so, so fiber cuts, stops that. And it says, okay, estrogen, stop here. Let's go, let's get out of the body. So the fiber part is clear. And if a person gets up to, oh, 30, 35 grams of fiber a day, it's quite a substantial increase from what your average person is eating. And it, and it, 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 will, it will reduce their estrogens level, estrogen levels. For younger women before menopause, I'm speaking especially of estradiol. Uh, for older women, estrone. Uh, but the fat part, let me be clear about what we know and what we don't know. What we know is that reducing fat reduces estrogen. What we don't know is why the heck that is. Hmm. Um, but these studies show that when women reduce dietary fat, the amount of fat they're eating, their estrogen levels fall. Hmm. Um, and so, so you can do both. You can increase fiber and cut the fat. You can just increase fiber. You can just cut the fat. But um, what's a vegan diet? It's got no animal fat and it's loaded with fiber. And then we take the extra step of keeping the oils really low. So do you think the fats from like nuts, avocados have the same effect as refined oils and such? I'm, I don't know, but I'm going to say yes. I'm going to say mm -hmm. probably. And they have an extra effect too. Uh, and don't, don't get me wrong. I mean, if you're a young, skinny, healthy person and you don't have diabetes or weight issues, mm -hmm. I mean, having a little bit of nuts, um, nuts have vitamin E in them. Um, the fat, you, you do need a little bit of healthy fats. Um, although it's, I have to say the way they flavor nuts these days, it's easy to binge, may I say, uh, my, my rule of thumb is put the nuts in the palm of your hand before it, if it hits the fingers, that's more than an ounce and an ounce is your dose. So, um, put it in your hand and then don't eat it, crumble it up and use it as an ingredient and then you'll be okay. Um, but, but yes, I, I, I think that any kind of, of nut or, or avocado or 
oil will probably contribute to this problem, despite the fact that in small amounts, I think they're really quite healthy. Yeah, um, I've seen it with my diabetic patients. I have a lot of patients sent to me by Robbie and Cyrus from Mastering Diabetes. I get yeah. some of their tougher cases. <laughs> and um, what I found is that, yeah, absolutely, any fats, even from the nuts and avocados over about 30 grams a day, they have more insulin use and struggle with their blood sugars, which is interesting. So, Lori, that makes complete sense because if you think about it, a nut is, let's say, let's go into nature. Mm-hmm. And you don't have a 7-Eleven with nuts all in a little pack that are, you know, uh, smoky flavored and that kind of stuff. You're in nature. Mm-hmm. You're not going to find on an ongoing basis a huge quantity of nut, nuts. And each one is in this little case mm-hmm. that you have to break open. And it's the most inefficient way to eat food. Um, <laughs> and the same is true for olives. You know, the, the olive tree does not have a faucet on it. Um, there, there was the olive. And so you had to eat the olive. You got all that fiber and all that pulp. And once you've eaten six or seven olives, you're, you're done. But once right. a person makes the olive oil factory, even if they call it extra virgin, what they are doing, in fact, is throwing away the fiber and the pulp and, and making what I'm going to call a refined product. Right, absolutely. Concentrated oil. And for a person with diabetes, it packs into their muscle cells, their liver cells. It causes insulin resistance. For a person battling weight, it's just the densest source of calories we have. And for whatever reason that that we haven't figured out, it boosts estrogen. Hmm. So uh, my suggestion, and women can, can... can see what their tolerance is. Mm-hmm. Um, if they have a little bit of oil in their diet and they're feeling fine, okay. Mm-hmm. But I would, I, I, I would suggest keeping it really modest. Very interesting. That is very cool. You know, I was uh, diagnosed with hypothyroidism at the age of 23, mm-hmm. um, or 25, excuse me. I had birth, gave birth to my second child. He was actually born hypothyroid. Wow. And then two weeks later, um, with the retesting, he was normal. Um, but he went on to have some pretty severe dyslexia and some learning disorders and he's done fine. He's about to graduate from college actually. Um, but I would say 15 years later, I went vegan. Um, and so that was eight years ago and my thyroid dosage dropped for four years in a row. (laughs) And, um, which was phenomenal because I was like, it's been 15 years since diagnosis. So um, can we talk a little bit about the thyroid? Because I'm a definite true believer in the thyroid. I actually ended up getting um, adhesive capsulitis in my shoulders from being hyperthyroid. That's how I discovered my thyroid was improving. <laughs> I started having symptoms of, of adhesive capsulitis, which hyperthyroidism is one of the um, risk factors when you're over-treated <laughs> medication. So, so you had been hypothyroid, and then you were put on thyroid replacement, and then you changed your diet but didn't change your dose, and you were, in effect, overdosing on the medication because your body had recovered. Yes, yes. And for two wow. years, I suffered with my shoulder issue. It's fine now, but it was... <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, that's amazing. Yeah, so that was pretty cool. I mean, that's the only health issue I really had, and um, it got better. My allergies went away, but, you know, so... 15 years later being dosed and, you know, escalating doses every couple of years, I just thought that was the way it was. No one ever told me uh, dietary changes could certainly have an effect on that. So, um, but I mean, 15 years later, I mean, that's pretty, that's a long time. So can you tell us a little bit about the thyroid? Cause I know, I mean, a lot of women who have thyroid, men have thyroid issues. So many people have thyroid issues. Uh, very often they're low, sometimes they're high. Um, and worldwide, if you look at it, it's, it's a lack of iodine. That's not your issue, um, probably, I'm guessing. 
Um, and that's not the issue for most people in the U.S., but you need, you need iodine to make thyroid hormone. And so back in the 1920s, the Morton company said, I'm going to put iodine in salt. And they did, and everyone used it. And so iodine was really not such a big issue in the United States, um, although it's still an issue some places. And for anyone listening to this, my advice to you is to have some miso soup tonight with a little seaweed in it or use the, have the seaweed seaweed salad or something. Sea vegetables just happen to be an exotic, cool way to get lots <laughs> of healthy iodine. Okay, right. but the, the reason that we're having this, um, almost uh, epidemic is too strong a word, but we're seeing a lot of hypothyroidism. Yeah. Um, it has, it's not low, low uh, iodine in the diet. It's an mm. autoimmune condition. Yep. And doctors know it. Um, and they can test you for antibodies. I had Hashimoto's, so, yes. Okay, there you go. And Hashimoto was a Japanese physician a whole long time ago who said, hey, here's this autoimmune condition that, that causes the thyroid gland to not function very well. So Hashimoto's thyroiditis was, was a clinical entity that was treated by replacing the hormone. However, what we've seen is out of the blue, people who have your experience, they're changing their diet, not because they're low in thyroid, but they're doing it for some other reason. And if it's a healthy plant-based diet, they suddenly discover their thyroid numbers are getting better. And sometimes they get a lot better and sometimes they no longer require medication and they're fine. Everybody's a little bit different. So what the heck is going on? <laughs> well, this is one of many autoimmune conditions where a diet change just cools it all down. The, the classic one for me is asthma, where you've got a child who's um, got asthma that is triggered by the environment, by, environment, by pet dander, by exercise, whatever, and he suddenly gets this vice on his lungs and everyone panics for, for good reason. Um, and he goes to the emergency room and hopefully he's okay. But then the child's family goes vegan and there's no dairy in the diet. And some of these kids, they don't have asthma anymore. And it's not, it, there are mixtures of genetic vulnerabilities and environmental contributors, but when the diet changes, what I, am, what I am guessing is happening is that we are removing certain strongly antigenic substances. Um, dairy protein, I'm going to guess, is culprit or suspect, number one. And when the dairy is gone, the kid's respiratory symptoms improve. And, and what you also discover is that other allergies get better. Not, not that they were necessarily allergic to the cow's milk, but it somehow made other sensitivities worse. So um, uh, Venus Williams, she had Sjogren's disease, which is an autoimmune condition where you get dry eyes and dry mouth and, and, and fatigue and, and, and her tennis game was shot. Uh, she goes vegan and she, she gets her game back. Um, so the thyroid, uh, two things can happen. Um, one is that and antibodies formed in response to who knows what can attack, attack the thyroid in such a way as they're effectively pushing on the brake so that thyroid hormone production falls. In occasional cases, the antibodies push on the gas and they're, 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 they're affecting now the production of thyroid hormone in the opposite way so that there's too much. And the patient has all these symptoms of hyperthyroidism, that weight loss, they're hyper, getting brittle hair and all, and all of these changes. Um, and so we have seen 
both situations, hypothyroidism and, hyper, and hyperthyroidism, improving on a plant-based diet. Quick word of caution. Um, I think this is one of many frontiers in research. And when I wrote Your Body in Balance, I knew that I was encouraging the medical world to look at these things and and first of all use what we know but explore what we're not sure about mm-hmm. and and this this is one of them i don't at this point know how often how, how many people if i take a thousand people with hypothyroidism how many of them are going to get better on a vegan diet that, that i don't know but i've just seen so many that my thought is let's let's study this rather than saying i'm going to keep you on your current dose for the rest of your life Let, let's see what let's see how this can change right and then suffer the consequences when you <laughs> do that. Right. So that is fascinating. You know, going back to kids with asthma, a lot of them will have the eczema as well. And I've had some severe cases with patients with eczema go away within three to four weeks, complete resolution they'd yes. had for years. I mean, I had one lady who was on methotrexate for five years, escalating doses. Um, and she, when I first saw her, she was all puffed up and swollen. She was on, you know, here she is on methotrexate prednisone. And I said, you know, you ever to talk to you about you know a dietary change and giving up dairy especially within four weeks she came off of it um the methotrexate has had done well ever since and it was really intriguing to me to see such a rapid improvement so it can be very very quick but it's it's scary what your body it's, will do it's so lucky that she had you as her doctor because <laughs> the, the pressure on patients and doctors now um comes every single night if you turn on the tv um there are commercials for biologic agents um, that that started out, you know, as your rheumatoid arthritis cure, but now they're your cure, cure for bad skin and everything else. And you go to the pharmacy, and the pharmacist will tell you that this is going to cost you about twenty thousand dollars a year, wow. um, and if that, which is why they can pay for so many commercials. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and and I don't know how many patients can be saved from that. But um, to be, what those drugs do is they disable the immune system to a degree. And so they they, they stop it from overreacting. But if you could say, wait, 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 what's causing it to react in the first place? Let me get that out of my life. And um, so for so, so many people, it's just a great thing. It's just a logical conclusion. Something's causing this. We're seeing this as, you know, these huge uh, increase in autoimmune diseases. There's something going on. Um, it seems pretty logical that's what we're putting in our body, but <laughs> I don't um, know. Well, I, I, think, I think that's right. And if you look at what changes have occurred, say, over the last generation, um, mm-hmm. one that has, I think, been neglected is what's going on with, with, with dairying. Um, milk consumption is falling slowly but surely. Despite the milk mustaches and everything, there's less milk consumed. What are farmers doing? They're turning milk into cheese. And mm. cheese is actually higher in protein, gram per gram, than milk is by far. So... You're getting a um, your average Americans um, cheese consumption over the last hundred years has soared from less than half a pound per year to now 35, 36 pounds per year. It's a, especially kids, um, and so um, we're we're dosing ourselves with these antigens in ways that are quite unprecedented, and much of that rise has been just over the last generation. And so people are saying, why is it that we're seeing allergies that we didn't see before? Is it climate change? Whatever. Maybe. But I'm wondering to what extent does dairy antigen potentiate other sensitivities? That's simply a hypothesis. But what what the average 
clinician and patient can do is try it uh, on themselves. There's no negative side effect to getting dairy out of your life and just seeing, seeing how you do. Absolutely. None, no negative whatsoever. <laughs> I do have a question, um, switching topics just a little bit about the soy. So that's often a <laughs> controversial subject, and I'm a fan of soy myself after reading the science. Can you describe why soy is beneficial? Because you mentioned it a few different places in your book. Yes. Um, and, and first, let me say, let me say that soy is, is not necessary, and I'm not pushing it necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, although I have to say, it's handy. Um, if you right. take bacon and instead have soy bacon, that is way better for you. Um, and you can turn soy products into soy milks and puddings and burgers, and one day they'll make snow tires out of it. So it's a very <laughs> handy product, but, it, but it's not necessary. But, but here, here's the reason I wanted to talk about that, is that a lot of people have, in fact, if you go on the internet, you will see this everywhere. Soy has estrogens that cause cancer. Um, and soy has estrogens that cause man boobs. Not, not my word, but this is what you'll see on the internet. The idea is that men have gynecomastia as a result of eating tofu or whatever. And um, where these things get started, I'm not entirely sure, but in the case of soy, back in the 1930s, um, soy products and some other foods too, were identified as having what are called isoflavones. And isoflavones, to some extent, will adhere uh, to estrogen receptors. And so people thought, oh my goodness sakes, um, that could drive the growth of a cancer cell. Um, However, the research didn't turn out that way at all. Um, When you look at women who consume almost no soy and you compare them to women who have a moderate amount of soy to those women who have a huge amount of soy, I'm talking about say Asian American women, um, where they might consume a very, very large amount of soy products. Um, What you see, is that the more soy women have in their routine, and I'm talking about soy milk, tofu, miso, tempeh, um, the more soy they have, the lower their, their likelihood of getting breast cancer. So that the highest soy groups have about a 30% reduction in breast cancer risk, which is great. And then when things really got the scientific community's attention was when it was not just breast can- getting breast cancer being reduced by soy, but when cancer mortality was reduced. Um, women who had been diagnosed with breast cancer, those who had the most soy had, again, about a 30% reduction in the likelihood that they would, would die from their cancer. So, uh, and now what I'm saying now for, for oncologists is not controversial. Everybody knows this. I mean, everybody who's familiar with the research knows it. Um, there just isn't research showing that soy causes cancer. So the way to think about it is back to what I was describing earlier. You have estrogen receptors on cells, a variety of cells in the body. And some, in some cases, um, whatever attaches to the receptor is pushing on the gas. But in other cases, it's pushing on the brake. And soy pushes on the brake and says, let's not, let's keep this cell stable. Uh, and by the way, for the, man, the guys who have man boobs, um, let me just say a word for them in case they're listening to this broadcast. <laughs> Forgive me for using that word, but that's the word you will hear. If you go to the gym and you hang out in the locker room, that's what the guys are all talking about. Um, anyway, um, what is happening is that as they develop body fat from eating cheese and pork chops and chicken wings, they, each fat cell produces estrogens 
Um, fat cells are not just lifeless bags of calories. They are estrogen factories. And what they do is they take a man's testosterone and they convert it to estradiol. Um, so he suddenly got more women's female hormones in his body and it, it causes breast development. So it had nothing to do with the tofu that he was not, frankly, he's not eating that anyway. You know, he's, he's, he's thinking, oh, I had some soy milk last month. Maybe that's what, no, no, no. It's the fact that you're overweight, you know, from eating these. And, and, and also it could be, there are in fact estrogens in cheese that could mm -hmm. contribute to it a little bit as well. Oh my goodness gracious. So it's, I mean, the alpha and the beta receptors, correct? I mean, so they yeah. kind of put the brake on the alpha estrogen receptors and kind of push the beta. So that's why bone mineralization is also improved with soy consumption. Um, from what I've read. Yes, yes, and yes, and, and there, are all, there are probably other reasons as well that have not been identified, but when you look at the literature, um, what you just described is exactly what people are writing about, and also they feel that there might be some other anti-cancer properties that soy has as well. Mm. But, I, but to put it simply, it's, a, it's sort of a hormone modulator. It, it gets you mm. back on an even keel. So once again, we're not pushing it, but there's no right. reason to avoid it, and, and what I'm really worried about is the well-intentioned but ill-informed doctor who says uh, to the cancer patient, I, I read in a magazine somewhere that, that you shouldn't have soy. Right. And, and what they're doing is they're, 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 they're condemning that woman mm. to a higher risk of breast cancer mortality than she would otherwise have. Right. Um, let her choose, and it's, it's got to start with an informed physician. Well, I'll tell you, my mother had breast cancer, her mother and all their sisters, and I eat soy every day. So yeah. there you go. <laughs> all right. Um, so you know, going on now to kind of the moods, because there's, oh, so many young people with depression and anxiety, and many of them are on medications. And um, can you talk a little bit about why a plant-based diet will help with the depression or moods, or especially like, you know, you had mentioned earlier PMS a little bit, but because right. um, there's mood changes also in menopause and just in general stress. Yes. With, with PMS and with menopause, um, Steroid hormones um, really act like mood grease. They just set your moods to, to become unpredictable. Um, however, there, there's, there, there, there is something else. It's not just the effect on estrogenic, estrogenic changes. We did a study with Geico, the, the car insurance company, year, years ago, because it's just the headquarters is right over there, about three blocks from my office. And so we started working with them first locally and then in 10 different U.S. cities. And what we did is that any Geico employee who wanted to go on a totally low-fat vegan diet for 18 or 20 weeks, we would support them and we would study what happened to them. And what we were studying was weight diabetes, um, uh, you know, glycemic control in people with diabetes, uh, cholesterol. However, along the way, we asked everybody to, to, to fill out questionnaires, and we didn't tell them we were looking at mood, but, uh, but, but we, we tracked numerically symptoms specifically of depression and of anxiety and job absenteeism, the things that could go along with that. And we, we had, what we discovered is that all of these things noticeably changed, uh, that, that depressive symptoms improved, anxiety symptoms diminished, and job uh, absenteeism diminished. And so that raises the question of why. Um, 
And I'm not sure why, um, but my hypotheses are, first of all, a simple one. You're losing weight, you're feeling better. Um, and so that is an antidepressant in and of itself. Um, however, there's more to it. And, and you've spoken about this a lot, that your digestive tract is populated with bacteria. And as soon as you change the foods that go in there, the bacteria start adapting and changing and the populations change. And they start making different kinds of compounds that can affect the brain in different ways. Um, and that can happen very rapidly. I mean, not to mention just the fact that with a higher fiber diet, you're not constipated and miserable all the time. But um, there's an interesting researcher in the Midwest who started noticing the same thing. First of all, not in randomized trials, just interviewing vegans, ovo-lacto, omnivores, and noticed that the vegans had the best mood. Now, now, now um, by that I mean on, on paper and pencil tests, they would, they would do the best. Uh, they had the highest, the best mood scores, the least depression. Now, you'd think it would be the opposite because if you are following a vegan diet, everybody you know wants to give you a headache. They're going to say, where do you get your protein? And da-da-da, you know, I mean, you would think that they would be the most likely to get depressed and anxious <laughs> because they have to deal with this. <laughs> I'm teasing. Um, however, it, it was not that way. And so then... Um, this same um, researcher, Bonnie Beasold is her name, uh, did a randomized trial. And it was, it was not super long and not super big, but it showed exactly the same thing. That um, when you take people who are not on a plant-based diet and you put them on one, you can see their moods will improve. Um, and a similar study has been done um, with ketogenic diets. And it does not have that effect. They get oh, wow. um, a little more ornery. Um, oh, wow. And, and now, now let me be clear. This is another one of these areas where I want to have more data. Sure. Um, however, I'm with you. You were talking about young people taking antidepressants, having side effects, having weight gain. Um, and, and you don't take an antidepressant for three weeks and stop. This is not like a UTI. You're going to be on it for years. Um, and I would love to see a good, careful study of diet which, which has already happened to a degree with exercise, where, as you, as you know, people have shown that if you get people lacing up their sneakers, even if they're exercising alone, mm -hmm. um, it has a mood lifting effect that if it's done in the right way is comparable to antidepressant medications, at least for groups overall. So why not put the diet and the exercise together and use that and, and build it into a structure where a depressed lethargic person who doesn't care about anything will still want to participate, mm -hmm. which right. can be done. It would have to be done carefully because depression is dangerous. Um, it, suicide is a real thing. Um, but I am convinced that this could be done and that the benefits would be just enormous. Even if they just started with mild to moderate depression and anxiety, um, I think you'll see significant improvement. At least I have just anecdotally as a family doc, um, seen some really, and just even also bringing in mindfulness. Those are some powerful tools. You get someone to change their diet, mindfulness and exercise. Wow. It's just, it's incredible. Yes. And, and, and one other thing, um, I, I would love to keep the focus on depression and anxiety, but even when we're looking at psychotic disorders, um, something nasty happens, which is that the medications that we use and that are important um, increase the risk of all kinds of metabolic problems. Right. Um, oh, yeah, so, absolutely. So the world of mental health needs to embrace a transition 
away from the cheeseburger chicken nugget worldview to the use of medications that really support human biology. And this would greatly reduce the, the side effects that people have from treatment, but may have beneficial primary effects to the extent that we get the gut lined up, we get the blood circulating in a better way, uh, we could probably get neuro, uh, the neurotransmitters in better balance, but, um, but we don't want to get ahead of ourselves with our conclusions. Uh, my, my, my message is let's study it and, and, and put it to work. Right, and it's certainly not going to harm you. <laughs> that's, that's, the beauty, that's the beauty of this diet. There is no negative side effects other than you may need to stop your meds quickly. <laughs> um, and the rules are really simple. You know, four food groups, vegetables, fruits, whole grains, beans. Take your vitamin B12. It's not optional. You really do have to take B12. Mm -hmm. um, if you're not getting any sun, you need vitamin D. Um, of course, that's true regardless of your diet. I mean, that's true of meat eaters too. But... Um, it's simple to do, and, and there's, there is zero contraindication. Yeah, absolutely, and it's, it's, it's so easy. Um, so then, you know, we kind of go into, we've talked a little bit about women and, you know, PMS. Let's talk a little bit about erectile dysfunction because, you know, obviously that's an issue. And recently the Game Changers came out, and that was, <laughs> you've seen it, it's really yeah. funny uh, section on that. But how is that affected by this type of diet? This, this is super important. Um, so many doctor's offices see the same scenario where a guy comes in and he says he's having trouble with his nature and he leaves with uh, a Viagra prescription. And I have, to, I have to say, I think that is a complete mistake for the doctor to do that unless the doctor has also told the patient what caused his erectile dysfunction, which, you know, this 55-year-old guy does not have performance anxiety. You know, in some cases, it's a medication side effect or he's drinking too much or whatever. But in the vast, vast majority of cases, it's, it's atherosclerotic disease. Um, in the same way as ever since he was a kid, he's slowly narrowing the arteries to his core, the coronary arteries to his heart and the carotids to his brain. The arteries to his private parts are much narrower to start with. And that's the first place where you get symptoms from, from narrowed arteries. Um, so the discussion that should happen in the doctor's office is, I understand you're having trouble with your nature. Um, I can help you with that. However, you're at very high risk for a heart attack or a stroke within the next several years because this is a systemic problem and I wanna help you to, to tackle all of that. So you can still prescribe the Viagra if you want to, but you've got to alert the patient to the disease that he really has, because that's gonna hurt him. And if you, my feeling is if a doctor just throws up, throws up pills without telling the patient what's going on, you're just letting this time bomb continue to tick. Absolutely. And it's been interesting. I, I call it the canary in the coal mine. And a lot of patients, you know, have come to me that have already been prescribed this. They have not been told that. So they're really surprised. They're just like, I just thought it was part of aging and maybe low testosterone. Like, no, 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 no. Let's talk about your brain and your heart, which can kill you, you know, when that happens. So it's so very important. We see this all the time in our research studies here. Um, I'll never forget one of the most striking. We, you know, we, we've done a lot of studies with people with type 2 diabetes, and they get dramatically better, and sometimes the disease just goes away. But we were doing a study for people with late-stage diabetes, and, and our question was, if I've had diabetes so long, 
that it's now attacking my nerves and I've got neuropathy. And we, we brought in a large group of, of men and women and they were, I mean, they were miserable. You know, they, they had the stabbing pains or pins and needles in their feet and, and they were depressed and just feel, I mean, because you don't see a, a light at the end of the tunnel when your diabetes is that bad. Um, and a lot of the guys had erectile dysfunction and everything else. So anyhow, in the course of this particular study, there was one uh, of our participants was a musician. And um, he noticed that as when he went on the vegan diet, his neuropathy improved just dramatically, as it did for many of them. Uh, you know, their, their blood sugar is getting better, their A1Cs are coming down, but their neuropathy symptoms got better. And this was important to him because he had it in his feet, he had it in his fingers, and he couldn't play so well. Um, and now he said, wow, my neuropathy is gone, I can play again. And then about um, maybe a month or so after that, he, he came in to, to our, we, we meet every week. You know, about a month after that, he came in and he said, and I'm feeling young again. And the group said, well, what do you mean? And he said, well, my erectile dysfunction is gone. You know, so anyhow, um, you, you see this all the time. Um, because in the same way as Dean Ornish showed in the heart, your, the arteries open up in, in what in his study, 82% of patients in, in the first year. And it doesn't take a big opening to make a huge increase in flow. Um, and so that's what you see with uh, the arteries to a man's private parts. So, so yeah, it's a, it's a good thing. Absolutely. And, you know, we talked a little bit about breast cancer and soy and then, you know, endometrial cancer and estrogens and uh, exposure over time. What about men and prostate cancer and such? Um, I know Dr. Ornish has got some amazing research. So what did you find in right in your book about that? Well, let me let me tip my hat to Dean Ornish's work here because after really revolutionizing the world of cardiology, in my view, he tackled um, prostate cancer mm. and did it in a particularly elegant way where he randomized a group of men. They all had they all had prostate cancer that was slowly advancing. So they were in watchful waiting. They didn't have to have treatment necessarily. You watch their PSA values and as long as they're not going up too much, you leave it alone. Half the men went on a vegan diet, the other half went on a control diet. And over the next year, the men on the control diet, on average, their PSA levels were, were gradually going up and several of the men had to drop out of the trial to have surgery or radiation. And in the vegan group, um, on average, their PSA levels were falling. You know, not much, but but like falling at all is, that's what you want. Um, and nobody in that first year needed needed treatment at all. Now, as time goes on, you still need to to watch. And and I'm sure it's not. I'm sure that some of these people will need will need treatment eventually and so forth. But but uh, it was astounding. It was amazing. And and it was the same kind of diet that you would use for breast cancer. Um, very low fat no animal products at all, um, supplement your B12 and, and see how you do. And of course, the men who have prostate cancer, they're at risk for everything else. They have weight mm -hmm. issues, they might have diabetes, they, they have cardiovascular disease. All, all of those are addressed by the very same diet. Absolutely. What do you think the mechanisms are for these? Uh, is it the low methionine diet? Is it the the no cholesterol, you're not feeding cells. And what do you feel like is the one of some of the major contributors? Why do men with prostate cancer seem to stabilize? Or just even cancer in general or some certain cancers? Um, we have suspects. Uh, nobody's been, um, I, I, I don't think we're, we're certain about any of it, but, but it's partly it's what's gone from the diet, partly it's what's in the diet. Um, mm. Many, many, many years ago, people started uh, studying lycopene 
Um, and lycopene, of course, is the red pigment in a tomato um, and in watermelon and pink, pink grapefruit. And what they, th these were Harvard researchers as well as others, they found that the more lycopene men had in their diet, the lower their risk of developing prostate cancer. Because lycopene mm. is a cousin of beta carotene and it's a very powerful antioxidant. And it was funny. Um, it didn't matter if you got the lycopene in a tomato or in ketchup. Um, it still would, would help the men. Um, and of course, there are many other antioxidants like beta carotene and, and others that, that, that add to this. But of course, what are you getting away from? You know, you're getting away from, um, fr from the standpoint of causing cancer, you're getting away from a number of the carcinogens that form as meat is cooked. You're getting away from dairy and dairy products increase the production of IGF-1 in the blood very rapidly. And um, IGF-1 is a potent stimulus for both breast cancer cell growth and prostate cancer cell growth. So getting the dairy out of the diet um, helps you with that as well. Um, testosterone levels presumably are modulated by this as well, but I have to say I've been trying to make sense of the role of diet and the role of modulating testosterone um, and how this affects prostate cancer. And I have to confess, Lori, I haven't, I still have not yet made sense of it um, there, but all of these things are in some way working together. It's fascinating. So I know we're running a little short on time. Could you give us one last bit of advice on um, what you would suggest or like to, to leave the, our audience with? What message? Um, sure. Um, I guess I would say that if, if anybody, if you're a clinician and you're talking to patients or you're a person who is thinking about doing this on your own, you might be thinking this is a tall order. Um, to ask somebody to get rid of animal products and to go on a different diet. So I want to just share the tip that, that we use here. And I, we've done this with thousands of people. And I, I've, I have never seen anyone unable to, to do this. Um, you break it into two steps. And the first step is you, um, you take a week. And during the seven days, you have a piece of paper uh, that says breakfast, lunch, dinner, snack. And your job over the next seven days is to fill it in with plant-based foods that you genuinely like. So let's see, for breakfast, um, I've been having cornflakes every day with cow's milk. I wonder if almond milk would be any good. I don't know. I got seven days to try it. If you like it, write it down. And then for lunch, um, maybe, you know, every day I have a couple hot dogs I get at the convenience store. Is a veggie hot dog any good? I don't know. Try it if you want. Or for dinner, I go to this. Italian place on the corner, and I always have the meat sauce on my spaghetti. Would the arrabbiata sauce be good? You got seven days. Try it. I, every day I go to Taco Bell. I have the, the meat taco with the bean burrito being good. Okay, so step one, take seven days. You're not taking anything out of your diet. You're not going vegan. You're just testing. You're checking out the possibilities, filling out your list. After seven days, step one is done. You've got your list. Now, Step two is take three weeks, and for the next three weeks, you're going to be completely vegan, meaning no animal products, 21 days, but you're going to do it using the list that you generated. Oh, wow, that's easy. I already like all those foods. Okay, so for 21 days, be strict with yourself, no animal products. By the end of that time, two things will have happened. Physically, you're getting healthier, but your tastes are modifying too. And so then it's just so easy to stick with it. So that's it. Um, let me show you this book, by the way. Here it is. I just got the galleys. Oh, it's, perfect. It's, there it is. Forgive me for oh, being let, let me, but let me, let me push out. it on. One sec. Let me pin you up there. Your body in balance. Excellent. Yeah, there it is. I'm really happy they did it. And, and my, my hope is, as I, I said at the beginning, 
I think people have gotten the word to a degree about how foods can help them lose weight or lower their cholesterol or deal with diabetes, despite the fact that there was always noise and, and confusion out there about these things and about which diet. But for all the people who are struggling with things where they never thought foods could help them with their mood or their thyroid or their menopausal symptoms or their infertility or, or PCOS or endometriosis or just cramps. Um, and you've got a 14 year old daughter who's miserable and you never thought that, that you could help. Let's put this to work. Let's explore it together. And um, I think that the more experiences we have, the smarter we're going to be and the healthier we're going to be too. Absolutely. I couldn't have put it better. So thank you so much, Dr. Bernard, for your time. As always, it's, it's an absolute delight. Great. Thank you, Lori. You're welcome.